pray with me. God, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your word that stands over time, thousands of years. Flowers, grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And we believe that. And we thank you for letting us see a glimpse of the past history that a nation who was delivered by you, a nation who saw your miracles turn its back and denies the very real God and turns to false idols, that they forsake your word. And we learn, Lord God, that you want us back. And Lord, today you're doing the same thing. You're calling each of us back to you. You're calling each of us to say, do not be afraid. I have never left you. I'm right here. And so show us, Lord, what it means to be in the time of crises and desperation to turn around and to see that you're standing there with your arms open wide, ready to receive us when we turn away from sin and turn to you. So God, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, speak to our souls. May your word be proclaimed and may you be glorified. We pray these things in the wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Let me just start by saying um, a story about a second grade class. A teacher asked, taught a lesson on magnets uh, to her second graders. And the next day she had a quiz. And she said, who am I? And I'm a six-letter word that starts with M and I pick up things. And the next day, to her surprise, 50% of the class wrote mother. <laughs> you know? so, so the kids, second grade, they have this concept that mothers are there to pick us up, to be there for us. And I, and I think there's something really important there. If I asked my wife this, I said, you know, what is it about moms? What is it about your mom that you just appreciate the most? And she said, you know, she's just there. She's always there for me. She's, she's there to just receive me. And I, I think, again, 100% of moms are not perfect. But the essence of these moms, rather than even dads, I notice this. When kids want to play, they come to me. When kids get hurt, they go, Mom, and they push me aside. And there's something about moms is this comfort, this nurture. And, and I think that God wired that in to show us this is really what I'm like. If you could see that in your human moms, if you could see your dads, and, and Jesus says this, and you, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, fathers who give, you know, fish instead of snakes, he says, you know, he says, how much more your father in heaven? So our parents point us to the realization when we see how great our moms and dads are. If they're that great, wow, what kind of God do we serve? My friend wrote on Facebook today, uh, he wrote this about his mom. He says, my MVP, most valuable player, prayed so long for me to go back to God. Love this woman. Happy Mother's Day. And what struck me about my friend in New Jersey, he's a pastor too, he was rebelling, running away from God, and through his mother's prayer, who never relented, he came back to the Lord, and now he's a pastor. There's something about God and moms never giving up on us. There's something about moms who are willing to stay there. And you hear about NBA players to celebrities, and the moms were there. So I feel like this is pointing us to this big story. We're going through the story that God has never abandoned. He sees us. We keep turning away. And sometimes we say, I don't like this God. But we're the ones that are actually saying to God, I don't want to follow you. 
I want to do it my way. And then we end up blaming God. And from Garden of Eden to now, God is in this upper story trying to say, I'm ready to receive you anytime. But you keep settling for these wooden idols. You keep settling for the things of the world and not me. You keep settling for your selfishness and even your religiosity and not me. And if you could just repent and turn to me, I would receive you. And this is the heart of God. And he's making his way to bring the fulfillment of his kingdom through, eventually, Jesus. So we're in chapter 16, and we know that the Israel divided. And 2 Kings, it tells us why God had to separate Israel. And it says, all this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt, and under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, they worshipped other gods. You know what's funny, though? Even with that... When we go through times of stress, I'm not sure if you've had this recently. I did. But you have those moments of just dread, like my life is going to cave in on me. Do you ever have that? At nighttime, you're sleeping, and you wake up, and you're just waking up at 2, at 4. You're sweating. Sometimes it's just this overwhelming feeling of like, I don't know what my life is measuring up to. And you feel this dread of failure or fear, and, and you just feel humbled. And I realize those are these times that remind us, and this may not be a surprise, but I'm not God. (laughs) We realize I need somebody. And it brings us back to God. And I think Israel is going to go through this, and this is what happens, King Hezekiah. And in that, God is saying to us these three words, four words. Say this with me. Do not be afraid. Why? What basis is that? Because God has not walked away from them. Every time they keep walking away and they keep diving into their troubles and God has to let them do, make their choices. But God is saying, do not be afraid. I'm right here. You call on me today and I am right there with you. So this is the message that God's going to give to Hezekiah. So we're in Second Kings and in background, that's the background. And this is what it says about King Hezekiah. He was the king who did right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. That's a great compliment. His father was who? Did you pay attention to scripture? His father was Ahaz, but the Bible says he was good. He was just like his father David. What a great compliment. He's crediting his great-great-great-grandfather, who was the man, who was like the king of Israel. And he's saying that's a child of David. I, I imagine like modern day analogy would be Beirut's great great grandson hits a baseball and home run like 50 home runs and they're like that's Babe Ruth's boy you know it's, Babe Ruth's been dead it's not his boy but what's we're, we're mean is that lineage is right there so Hezekiah was a great king what made him a great king there's three things that he did right away when he became king first thing this is so important for us today he removed the false idols and smashed the altars of Baal, the Asherah poles. He was tearing down idol worship. So can you imagine that? Your father, King Ahaz, sets up altars to worship other gods. You become king at 25 years old. Anybody close to 25 years old? I see some, some. Okay, Everything's relative, right? So some of you are closer. And this young kid comes in, becomes king, and he says... Burn this up. 
we are not worshiping those gods. We're going to go back to the Lord. Wow. And this is something that I never realized. In verse 4, it says this. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. Did you catch that? Moses. I mean, the man. The Hall of Fame guy. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made. I'm thinking, you put that in like a glass case and you keep it sealed up, locked up? No, he says, he broke it that Moses had made for up to that time the Israelites have been burning incense to it. What? Did you catch that? Israelites were taking a thing that God used to deliver them. And in that story, real quick backdrop, Israelites grumbled, rebelled against God, and God got mad and let poisonous snakes go into the campground, bit people, and they were dying. And Moses built a snake. And God says, whoever looks at the snake will be healed. And that snake, that rod, stabbed, they kept it, and they were burning incense to it. Do you see the human dynamic there? We are people who will worship anything that we could grab our hands to. We don't worship the giver, we worship the things. For example, so if this guitar was at a John Lennon concert, we adore this guitar, we love this guitar, we worship this guitar, we worship the things, and we get so sidetracked by objects that God, even God provided, rather than the giver of the good things. So a good thing like even Moses' snake, staff, can derail us from God. So idol worship is not merely wooden statues, but this church building, yes, it's beautiful. It's for God. But if we end up worshiping the building rather than the builder of the church, we are living in idolatry. And King Hezekiah comes in and says, we are going back to God, the King of Kings. We are not going to worship things. We will worship the giver of everything. Isn't that good news? Amen? And see, human nature, you and I, we're so sentimental. We get caught up with the things. And they're important. Traditions are important. But they're never more important than God. And you could have a church without Christ. You could have a church worship without God. And there was a story about that. Some guy kicks out this, you know, some church kicks out this person that didn't fit in with the crowd. They're like, oh, you know, you want to go to the other church over there. And the guy walks out, mopes out. He bumps into Jesus. And he, Jesus is like, what's wrong? He's like, they don't want me in there. And Jesus says, me either. Oof. So you can have a church that worships without God. And so Israel, the, the nation that's supposed to point all the world to God, is called an idolatry, and you can see why God is so upset. So Hezekiah smashes these things, and he, two more things. He trusted in the Lord. He held fast to the commands of Moses. A church, an organization, a group that's centered around the word of God to say, God, how now shall we live? What do you say to us? And King Hezekiah was bringing them back. And lastly, this is the keynote, key, key step to the next crisis is he stood up against the pagan king of Assyria and did not serve him. Now, just picture this. We're in California, right? What's a state right over next to us? Is it Arizona? Right? Arizona and New Mexico, right? So can you imagine, I don't know, ISIS or some terrorists coming and they just take over Arizona? I don't know. Just play fiction with me. 
We're seeing the whole country fall, and we're the only California, we're on the West Coast, and we're the last group. Can you imagine, in your lifetime, the king has seen his northern neighbors fall under Assyria. I mean, they're demolished. Their Sumerian temple, just corrupted. They get deported. Can you imagine being deported from your own land? That happened to Korea many times. You know, they keep, you get invaded by Japanese, Chinese, and, and, and we have this history of deportation. And we come, and can you imagine, you're like, where is God? And Hezekiah is in the south looking, and he's saying, wow, 20 years have passed, and that same empire is knocking on your door saying, guess what? You're next. What do you do? What are you going to do? And so we're at the stage where King Hezekiah faces his crisis. And this is so real. The king of Assyria goes to Hezekiah's people and says this. This is how Satan works, by the way. And this is how enemies work. The king of Assyria goes to the people of Judah and says, Your king, Hezekiah, I want to tell you something. He's going to let you down. Don't count on him. What is he doing? <laughs> He's undermining Hezekiah's leadership. Three times, 2 Kings 18.30, do not let Hezekiah persuade you. You're going down. <laughs> it's like trash-talking nations. This nation, Judah, you're going to fall. 2 Kings 18.31, do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. 2 Kings 18.32, do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you, the Lord, by when he says the Lord will deliver us. Now, this, this is important because king of Assyria is saying this. You guys are people of God. Your God can't even save you from me. What kind of king is that? Wow. He's actually saying your God that you worship, even he can't save you from me. And king of Assyria gives a resume. <laughs> it's funny. It's, you got to read the Bible. He gives a resume of all the nations he's conquered and all of their gods. And he says, remember this God? Check, beat them. Remember this nation with this God? Check, beat them. And so the point here is Hezekiah is completely pressured by the greatest empire ready to knock on their doorsteps. What do you do? Have you ever been there? Did you ever feel like that financially? Maybe family? You feel like your family's falling apart? Have you ever been there spiritually? You feel like, God, where's my life? Career-wise, emotionally? I don't know if you really lived, if you never felt those moments. I don't think you're human. You're an android. Because normal human that I know has moments in their life where they say, what is going on? And I think that's God's way of getting our attention to say, are you, what kind of king are you? Are you a king that depends on your power? Or are you going to be the king that depends on the king? Of kings. And so ironically, ironically, there's something that's interesting. King of Assyria says this line, and I want to read it to us. And King of Assyria says to Hezekiah's people in chapter 18, a line that I want us to remember. And it's weird because this is coming from this is coming up from a foreign king. But I want us to remember this question. Can you remember this question? Just if you all, if you go home today, just remember this question. From verse uh, 19, 2 Kings 18, the king of Assyria asks Israel, I mean Judah, on what are you basing this confidence of yours? 
You are standing against the greatest empire. You're standing up to it. What is the basis of your confidence? And I wonder if some of us will say, my good looks. I know I don't use that. Some of us will say, because I look at my house, I look at my job, I got it pretty good together. What is the basis, Jason, that you could stand up against Satan and the enemy or against this world and you could stay faithful to God? What is your confidence? I go to church every Sunday. What is your basis? I think this is a great question the king of Assyria is asking. What is the basis of your confidence? Is it your knowledge? I know the Bible. What is it? I'm part of the choir. You know, I touch the Bible. And we, the point is, we base our confidence, I think, on these things. On our abilities. On our strength. And you know what happens to those people? You could tell me. What happens to those people when they base their confidence on themselves? You preach it to us. What happens? We fail. The reason why northern Israel failed was the kings that were cruel and evil were saying, I am the man. We don't need God. Failed. And I think the reason why we're tested is because we're reminded that we're going to fail. So this is what King Hezekiah does. He takes a letter from king of Assyria, and this is what it does. Let me read verse 14 and 19. Hezekiah received a letter from the messengers and read it. Then he went up to the temple of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. So here's a letter from Hezekiah as king of Assyria saying, you will be crushed. Hezekiah takes this letter, goes to the temple, puts it on the ground, and then this is what he does. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to the words of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, has sent to insult the living God. And he prays, It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. And I like how Hezekiah puts this in. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone, fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord God, deliver us from his hand, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone our God. I want to ask you, do we do that? You hit a crisis. Do we come before the Lord with a heavy letter and say, Lord, here it is. You're God. You can deliver. My confidence is not in my degrees. It's not in my ability to solve a problem. Only you can save me. You see, we need a Savior every day, and it's the same Savior. We call him Jesus. We are not the orchestrators of our lives, but we live as if our confidence is in us and not God. And the greatest thing about this crisis is that, you know what God did in that very next day? While Hezekiah finishes his prayer, Isaiah comes and says, God has heard your prayer. Here it is. Say this again. Do not be afraid. And you know what happened? Hezekiah conquers this Assyrian army without lifting a finger. For the angel of the Lord went into the Assyrian camp and kills 182,000 Assyrian soldiers. And they were delivered. So you're like, all right, that's kind of dramatic. 
Um, does that happen to us today? And I want to read you this story. That when we seek God's face and we surrender our control and we say, God, in my fears, desperation, I turn my face to you. I turn from my sin and my selfish ways and I turn to you, the King of Kings. God will never, ever fail you. I'm going to say that again. When we turn away from ourselves and our sin and turn fully surrendered to God, he will never fail you. And let me show you one of many stories that happened. I just read this because it's, it's so, so, so good. But in 1945, this U.S. Army soldier was in Germany. And he writes, as a, Spencer January, that's his name. And as his comrades and he were waking through a wooded area, their company came upon a scene, and it was a grim situation. The route to Ossenburg had been completely barricaded by the Germans. So he prayed, God, you've got to do something. Please do something, God. Moments later, the order was given to advance just as the soldiers ahead of me took a step. Something caught my eye. So do you get this? They're going through a ravine. Germans are right there, and they're saying, march. They're sitting ducks, and the infantry before them, they're all shot up. So he prays, God, we need your help. So moments later, the order was given to advance, and just as a soldier ahead of me took a step, something caught my eye. I stopped and stared in amazement. A cloud, a long fluffy white cloud, that's what he writes. Big soldier writes a fluffy white cloud, had appeared instantly out of nowhere, obscuring the Germans' line of fire. Taking advantage of this miraculous turn of events, I and my fellow soldiers bolted into the clearing and ran for our lives, safe into the sheltering woods on the other side of the clearing. I hid behind a tree and exclaimed, This has to be God. I'm going to see what happens now. And I watched closely as the last American soldier frantically raced towards us into the woods. And I will never forget what happens next. The instant the soldier scrambled to safety, the cloud vanished. Poof. It was gone. And just that, the story would be pretty amazing. But listen. The Germans, thinking they still had the American soldiers pinned down behind the stone house on the other side of the field, radioed its position to the artillery. Artillery. Minutes later, the house was blown to bits. Two weeks later, a letter arrived from my mother back in Dallas, Texas. Son, what in the world was the matter on the morning on March 9th? She asked. And she wrote in the letter, You remember Mrs. Tankersley from our church? Well, she called me that morning and said that the Lord had awakened her at 1 o'clock in the morning and said, Spencer is in trouble. Get up now and pray for him. Mrs. Tankerley said she interceded for you until 6 o'clock in the morning, around the exact time that this was going on. She told me that the last thing she prayed before getting off her knees was, Lord, whatever danger Spencer is in, just cover him with a cloud. And you're like, how does that happen? I mean, how does this coincidence How does desperation and seeking God and saying, we have nowhere to go, we're doomed, and God, I am not God. And God brings the church from opposite side of the world and wakes up a lady and says, pray for Spencer now. And she's like, I don't know how to pray for him, but I pray for him. At the end, 
Send him a cloud. And this book has like a whole mess of these stories, Billy Graham stories to Spencer. And I want to tell you, the message God is saying to us is, he's never abandoned you. We may have turned our back on him. And if that's us, it is so simple. And he's saying to Israel, to Judah, and to us, you come back to me. You fully trust me. You turn away from your sins and repent and trust in me and let me save you. You will be saved. You see, Isaiah, the prophet he spoke about, went on to write Isaiah in our Bible. And he talks about there will be a time when we are all going to be delivered. And this is not going to be a crisis anymore. And he talks about in Isaiah 53, there was one who was not that beautiful. He was led to a, like a, he was led like a lamb to slaughter. And it says, for our sins he was pierced, for our transgressions he was cursed. And by his wounds we are saved. And Isaiah is saying, one day we will be fully delivered. And his name is Jesus, who will come through the nation of Judah. Assyria will not win. Even Babylon will not win. Friends, I want to tell you, Satan cannot beat you when Jesus Christ is your shepherd. Amen? Amen. This world cannot crush you when God is the God who oversees you. Your failings can never destroy you. It could scar you. It could mark you, but it will never identify you. Jesus Christ can. And we're celebrating Easter because what makes all of this true is Jesus not only died for you, but he rose again to show us, yes, you seek my face, you will find me, and I am right here, and I will deliver you. Do not be afraid. Are you afraid? On what is your basis of your confidence? Would you join me in prayer as we say, Jesus, you be my rock. You be my hope. Let's pray.